All right, so we're in the book of Philippians tonight. We're going to begin a series in the book of Philippians. I'm calling Life in Christ. As Paul talks about our position in Christ in this book, but also the practical blessings and the outflow that God wants to do in our life. So we'll begin in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, and we're going to go to verse 11 tonight. Just take the first section of Paul's introduction as personal comments, but also some practical application for us. Let's pray, and then we'll, we'll get in the word. Father, thanks so much for your love for us, Lord, and your grace. Lord, we love to sing about it, Lord, because it's, it's why we are, Lord, you know, who we are. Lord, it's, we're in you, and we're saved, we're born again, we have the hope of heaven, we have the, the joy of the Lord, and it's all because of your grace. Lord, you've done the work for us, and we want to celebrate that work. Lord, but we also want to learn more about it so we can tell others about it, Lord, and so we can live it out daily. And so speak to us, Lord, by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So it is a fact that the believer in Jesus positionally is seated in Christ. Jesus, for example, in John 15, 45, said this. He said, abide in me, and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. And then Jesus went also uh, on also in um, John 17, praying to his father, he said this. He said, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who believe in me through their word. That they, may all, um, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given them, and they, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you sent me, and have loved them as you have loved me. And so it's clear that Jesus' desire is that believers would be one, and that believers would recognize that we are in him, and that in Christ is where our source of, of growth comes from. In Christ is where our source of blessing comes from as we abide in him and also in his word. Paul continues that same teaching here in the book of Philippians. We encounter it in the very first verse. In verse 1, Paul talks about the saints in Philippi who were in Christ, to the saints who are in Christ. So the fact that we're in Christ gives us some practical applications and also some implications. And I want to look at these things as we work through these verses. And so we begin in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. And so Paul begins this letter as he does most of his epistles. He begins by addressing himself as the author it's believed that Paul wrote this letter while he was in prison in Rome around 61 to 62 AD. Now, it's amazing that Paul uh, wrote this letter, and really the theme of it behind it is joy. Most of you that have read commentaries before know that most scholars point out that the word joy or rejoice is used often in this epistle. And it's really amazing in light of the fact that Paul was writing from a jail cell. He was writing for prison. There he was waiting to be tried um, you know, in Rome, and, and, but yet he was able to write about joy and the fact that believers can rejoice. I believe Paul's position in Christ enabled him to have joy despite his circumstances. 
And we know it was really his position in Christ that enabled him to have joy because the word that's used most in this epistle besides joy is Christ. And so as he was in Christ, he was able to experience joy. And that's the truth of the Christian life. The Christian can have joy. And as we all know, joy is in contrast to sorrow. And joy is something actually different than happiness. Happiness is a feeling that is passing. If you give me a million dollars, I'm happy. But if I, when I take it to cash it, it's counterfeit. I'm not happy anymore. But joy is despite circumstances. Because joy is based upon Christ and our position in him and the absolute expectation that he's going to work all things together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. And so Paul was able to write this letter and write it with joy. Now Paul mentions Timothy with him while he was writing this letter. Timothy was with Paul there encouraging him. Timothy was considered Paul's son in the faith. He came to Christ through Paul's ministry Paul discipled him, raised him up, commissioned him as a pastor, and Timothy would later go be the pastor of the church of Ephesus. And I love this team there. You have Paul, age now in wisdom, but yet Timothy, a young man, probably in his late 20s, early 30s, yet still ministering alongside of him. And it just really shows us a good example of what God intended the church to be. That, you know, that God would have older people with wisdom to disciple the younger, right? You know, so there's that good mix there of um, young and old ministering alongside one another for the, for the glory of the Lord. Now, these men are called bondservants of Jesus Christ. And the term bondservant really, I think, describes well how we are placed in Christ. You know, if we're talking about how we're in Jesus, the question is, okay, well, how do we get there? And Paul says, yeah, we're bondservants of Jesus Christ. Most of you that have read the Old Testament know from the book of Exodus that God established in his law that if a person became poor or they were in a you know, poverty situation, they can actually sell themselves into bond slave, to be a bond slave, sell themselves into service. And under the Jewish law, they could serve the master for six years, and after the six years, then the master was to let that person free. Now, they were to be let free with only the things that they were brought, that they brought into their servanthood. So if they got married, they had kids, they gained wealth, property, or anything, that was to be left with the master when they left after the six years. And so they had a choice to make after the six years. Am I going to choose to keep these blessings that my master has given me? He's a good master. You know, he, he's given me these blessings. Am I going to choose to stay with him and, and serve him for life? And, you know, that was the choice. And if they did choose to serve him for life, they'd take him to the post of the house and with an awe, pierce their ear. And they would put a ring, earring in it. First piercing in the Bible, uh, you know, and, and there, they would, there they would serve him for life. And Paul says, hey, you know what, guys? That's what we are as Christians. That's how we are placed in Christ. You see, we didn't come to Christ with riches. <laughs> we didn't come to Christ with an abundance. We came to Christ in poverty. Jesus said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We come to Christ broke, spiritually in poverty, without nothing to offer, but yet the Lord says, look at the blessings I can give you. Look at the goodness of me, your master. And we, with our will, choose to serve him for life. And the Lord pierces us. He, you know, he seals us with his Holy Spirit. He has given us that symbol that we belong to him. The word in debt in, um, you know, engagement ring is actually used of the Holy Spirit who's given to us as our earnest guarantee. So we're his, we're his servant. We're also called his, his bride. Now, Paul goes on to address his audience Three groups are mentioned here. The saints in Christ, 
um, in Philippi, the bishops and the deacons. And so the saints are referring to all believers in general. So you might not know this, but since you're in Christ, you're actually a saint. I don't think we have you on our stained glass in there. We don't have any saints on our stained glass, right? Which is a good thing. But you're a saint in Christ. And the word saint means set apart. And the moment you believed on Christ, God set you apart. Now, doctrinally, he set you apart positionally, right? As he made you sanctified in the beloved. He set you apart, but also practically and, and, and personally, he's setting you apart daily as you walk with him. That conviction you have, like, oh man, I messed up. I'm in sin. I need to repent, you know, kind of thing. Or I shouldn't have used that attitude. That's the spirit convicting us, and it's a good thing because he convicts us daily and he helps us to be more set apart from the world as we, as we walk with him. So you're a saint. The other group that is mentioned here um, are the... Um, bishops and deacons. The bishops were those in the position of leadership, also called pastors or elders in the Bible. Their job was to lead, feed, and watch over God's flock. The deacons, also mentioned here, are men, as seen in Acts 6, who minister to the physical needs of the church. And so these elders or pastors or bishop, what do you want to call them, were ministering the word of God and, and the spiritual needs of the church. And then the deacons were among the body, helping out with the physical needs, whatever it might be, whether it be money tables as seen in Acts 6 or um, benevolence or, or any other uh, physical need. Now, these believers were all in Philippi. They were all there. And Philippi was an interesting city. It was a um, city in Europe, actually the first European church that was established and it was a Roman colony, and these believers were mostly Gentile, and they were all saved out of paganism. And the Lord saved all these pagan Gentiles and planted them into this church, and as we read this epistle, we're going to see that they were a light to the rest of the world. As all these other believers read about their testimony, they were encouraged because of the work that God was doing in them. And they were scattered, you know, just as God has scattered all believers. And so they were in Philippi, and the purpose of being there was so they can grow and bear fruit. In the same way, you and I, were in Christ, and we've been scattered to Hanford or wherever else the Lord has placed you, Lamore or Fresno or wherever it might be. The Lord has scattered you, and the purpose of him scattering you to that place is so you would grow where you're planted. And something good for us to always remember that, hey, where I'm sown is where the Lord wants me to plant. Sometimes you think, I don't like where I'm sown. I want, you know, I want to leave or whatever. And, or it might be, I don't like my boss. I don't like my job. And the Lord says, hey, I've sown you here, so I want you to grow. And the folks in Philippi, they were in a pagan city, but that was the exact place that the Lord wanted them to grow. And they could grow because they were in Christ. They could um, bear fruit. We go on to verse 2. Watch and make it through this whole passage, I, I guarantee you. Now, verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace was a common greeting in that day, and it was actually a very good greeting. It was meaningful. It wasn't like saying, what's up, dude? What's going on? Kind of thing. I mean, it's kind of like just meaningless, and you just kind of say it just to say it. But this was actually a very meaningful statement because it talks about the fact of what the believers receive through our position in Christ. We've all received grace, and grace is God giving you what you don't deserve. That's what God has given us. He's all given us, he's given us all grace. Grace is, is our source of, of, of life. It's what enables us to, to believe on Christ, and it also is what sustains us as we walk with Christ. 
Now, the source of grace is not by sacraments or any other works. Notice this, it's by God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. So God continues to pour out his grace on us, not because we work real hard or because we're better than others, but, you know, but because we're in Christ. And that's always a sweet thing to remember. It's, it's easy for us as humans to become religious, thinking, man, if I do all this, well, then God's gonna give me grace. I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be really good. I'm gonna be like the executive grace member kind of thing. But, you know, now obviously the Lord doesn't want us to sin that grace may abound, as Paul says. But we need to remember that we have grace and God continues to supply us grace and change us because of the fact that we're in Christ, because of our faith in him. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. So the main body of this letter begins with some personal comments of encouragements for these guys. Paul expresses his love for them and his care for these believers, so much so that he says that every time he thinks of them, he thanks God for them. He says, hey, I was just thinking about you guys today, man, and just well my heart up just to give thanks. He says, as often as he thinks about them, he prays for them and thanks God for their fellowship in the gospel. It's pretty neat, huh? And it's really a symbol in a, in a sign of fellowship. And that's one of the blessings that we all have in Christ as we are in this position. You see, we were saved and placed in Christ, but we weren't placed there to be lone rangers. When we were placed in Christ, we were actually placed into his body of Christ. We're told in 1 Corinthians 12 that we've all been baptized by one spirit into his body. And the body is one body, but is made up of many members, many different types of members, right? All different, but yet God has one body for us to dwell in. And the purpose of that one body is to be a blessing and an encouragement. That's really what the church is to be, is to be a blessing and encouragement. Some people think of church as a bummer, right? And a discouragement. But that's not really what the church is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a blessing and encouragement. It was established by God in order to bear fruit in our life as we abide in Christ. That's where God has planted us in his body. The way God does that is through the word fellowship here used by Paul. Remember what Jesus said in John 17? I read it a little bit ago. He said, Father, I pray that they would be one. And you know what? God has answered that prayer. On the day of Pentecost, when the first believers were saved, we're told that they spent time in the apostles' doctrine. They studied the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, the first Calvary chapel, right? I'm just joking. I'm just, so if you're a Calvary, you have to say that. And I think, I think all pastors watch it just to make sure you say that. That's just, I'm just joking. But you know, so anyway, so yeah, you know, they studied the Bible verse by verse, and then they spent time in prayer. They broke bread, or in other words, they had times of communion and, and fellowship, and then fellowship. You know, and the word fellowship there means a oneness. They were in community with one another as a church as they were walking in Christ and walking in love. And their fellowship was much more than just drinking coffee. They probably did have coffee, some pretty amazing coffee. But it, it was much more than that. They ministered to one another and met one another's needs. As people saw that these people traveled from all over the world and that they were in Jerusalem, and what Jews would do is they would be broke by then, most scholars say, because most people... Jews of the dispersion, it's a little side note here, Jews of the dispersion would travel, right, all the way from their homelands to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. And so they would, you know, spend their time there. And then because it was such a long journey to go back to their home, 
they would stay there also for Pentecost, which is 50 days later. So man, after 50 days of being in Jerusalem, they're broke. And so these believers, they got, but you know, but on the day of Pentecost, they got saved. And so like, well, what do we do now? We don't have any more money, but we want to stay and hear the word. And so these other believers saw that. And so they began mortgaging their houses and laying the money at the apostles' feet so these believers can stay and be taught the word of God. That's a true sign of their fellowship with one another, right? It's, it's, it's a sign of the fact that they not only loved, but they loved in, in physical ways too, ministering one to another. The Philippians lived this out. They carried this legacy on, and Paul says that here. They both did their part, Paul and these Philippians. Paul ministered to them through his gift of teaching, right? And, and, and he also ministered to them through prayer. But they cooperated with Paul in the work of the gospel in the sense that they provided for Paul's needs. They, they ministered to Paul through physical needs. They gave, but also they gave one of their servants, Epaphroditus. They, they sent him to Paul when Paul was up there in order to minister to Paul. And so there was a mutual fellowship going on. There was a oneness. There was a communion because they had both things in desire and in common, their desire to know God and to make him known. God has placed us in the church, in Christ, and the reason why he has done that is so that we would love one another. And that's what, that's what the Lord wants us to do and to minister one to another, to lay down our life for one another. And when people come to our church, they wouldn't just see it as a clique or as a, as a group, but they would see it as people who love one another as Christ has loved us. Verse six, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So if you're going to underline a verse, a life verse, that would be a good one right there. Not only did Paul feel joy when he thought about the believers, but he also had a sense of confidence in God. Paul's confidence was in the good work that God began in these believers, and he knew it, that, that God would continue it until the day of Christ. The good work refers to the work that God began in their hearts through the gospel. But also some think it could have been referring to Paul's cooperation as well in the ministry. The fact that they were saved, but also they were serving the Lord alongside of Paul. Either way, when Paul thought about their beginnings, he just began rejoicing. I mean, he thought about when he came into the city of Philippi and there was not more than 10 Jewish women there. There wasn't a synagogue. So he began ministering to the folks down by the river down there and things turned bad as they began speaking falsely about Paul and, you know, and they eventually ended up putting him in jail and him and Silas were there worshiping the Lord as the earthquake happened. And there the Philippian jailer was going to kill himself. And so Paul said, hey, don't do that. And he said, well, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you and all your household. So the guy was saved and he took Paul over to his house. He washed his stripes and Paul preached the gospel and his family was saved. And the gospel there began to spread in that town. And so Paul doesn't remember his times of beating. He doesn't remember the times of discouragement. All, can he, all he can remember is the joy of the fact that they came to know the Lord through his time being there. He said, when I think about that, I rejoice. But God's not done yet. And that's the good news. The work that God began, he is going to complete. Either you know, until you go home to be with Christ or until he comes back to you to rapture you. Either way, God is not going to stop his work until your time is up here on earth. The Bible calls us God's masterpiece. We're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, right? For good works that God has prepared beforehand that we would walk in, Ephesians 2.10. We're his workmanship, we're his poem, and God is writing our life daily as he, as he works on us, his masterpiece. 
I always think of this verse as having like a canvas, right? Where you, know, where you have a painter or a tapestry in which they're sewing. But yet right next to them, you know, there's that complete picture right there. And that's what the Lord is doing in our lives. The Lord has the complete picture of what he wants to make us in his head. And he, he knows exactly what that is. To us, sometimes we seem undone. But the Lord is going to complete that work. It will be something beautiful in the end. We'll wake up and we'll be in the image of Jesus. And so we have the promise that God's not going to stop that work until Jesus comes back for us or until he calls us home to him. Just as it is right for me to think this of you because I have you in my heart inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me of grace. And so because these believers were in fellowship with Paul and partnered with him, Paul was touched personally. It really ministered to Paul. They were in his heart and they were with him during his time of imprisonment. Now, Paul talked about his confidence in verse 6, and now he gives here in this verse, verse 7, where it all came from. Paul's confidence that God would complete his work is based on the fact that they were both partakers of grace. That's really the basis of it. Paul says, hey, I know God's going to complete his work in your life because you're a partaker of his grace. We stand in God's grace, and we rejoice in hope in God's grace. It's all about grace, you know? It's God's riches at Christ's expense. That's what grace is. It's all based upon the cross, and through our faith, we're born again, we're sealed, and God begins to work on us daily through his spirit, never to let us go. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you with, with all the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in all knowledge and all discernment. And so God's not done, right? He's working in our life. He's, he's molding us. He's shaping us. He wants to grow us. And that's what Paul begins talking about here at the end of this passage. In verses 9 through 11, he talks about these, this, this growth that God wants to do in us and the fact that God wants to change us. First, he talks about love, God wants us to grow in love. He wants us to abound more and more in him. They were to follow Paul's example, and they were to love others as he loved them and also as Christ loved them. Now, we all know that the word love here, as often used, is the Greek word agape. That's what the Greek word is. And this word was actually coined by Christians. It was a unique word that was used by Christians. And the reason why it was coined by Christians is because it describes a supernatural and sacrificial love. This sacrificial love was described by John in 1 John 4, 7-8. And here's what he says. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And so this love of God has been poured out in our heart through the Holy Spirit. When we were born again, we were born again and, and, and sealed with the Spirit, and this love came by God's Spirit. And John says, if you don't love, if you don't have this love coming from your life, well, then you're not born again. Because our God is love. And if he lives in you, then you'll love others. So it's a supernatural love. It can only come from God's Spirit. But it's also a sacrificial love. And we see that illustrated in the fact that it was the love that motivated God to send Christ to die for us on the cross. And it was the love that motivated Christ to lay down his life for us. In Romans 5.8, we're told that it's God's love demonstrated towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died. And so if you want to know what love is, love is to lay down your life 
for others. But it's not to lay down your life to look for something in return. It's to love based upon truth. And that's how Christ loved us. He loved us not looking for anything in return, but because, you know, you know, but because he loved us and it was the best thing for us eternally. And so if we're going to love others as Christ loved us, then we're to lay down our life for one another. And we're to love in truth, not for something in response. You know, this is in contrast to saying, well, I would love that person if they, you know, would treat me better kind of thing. And the Lord says, no, you love based upon truth because it's the right thing to do and because it's what we're commanded to do in Scripture. Now, a sign of a believer growing in agape is not compromise of truth or blind love, but it's to love in knowledge and in discernment. Knowledge refers to growing in our understanding of biblical love as seen in Christ and is to discover new ways to exercise this love towards each other. To love and discernment means to love effectively according to the word and the leading of God's spirit. And this is a great example you know, from Christ's life. Sometimes you, know, you see Christ minister and he does something that totally shocks you. Like, wow, he, he did that? Because he knew what God wanted him to do and how he wanted him to love. As the apostles were walking into the, the temple there in Acts 3, or in, in that, uh, yeah, Acts chapter 3, and there they saw the man sitting there wanting alms. And Peter says, hey, silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have I give you freely in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And so he knew exactly what God wanted him to do, how he wanted to love that man. In Mark chapter 2, the, the man, the, the, you know, the paralytic there, is, he was let through and he was looking for healing, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Well, that's not really what I came here for. I came here to be healed. And Jesus says, well, your sins are forgiven, but that you may know that I have the power to walk, you know, forgive sin, rise up and walk. And he, he got up and walked. And so we need to seek God and have discernment on how he would seek us to love others. At times it might be a rebuke or it might be a correction of someone's in sin. It's not blind love, not just saying, oh, yeah, do whatever you want, because I love you. No, sometimes we have to say, hey, I love you, but you're in sin. And it's like cancer. If, if, you, if you continue to dabble in it, it's going to destroy you. You need to cut it out. Other times, it's to love others by preaching the gospel. You know, sometimes you might just say, hey, man, you just need to get saved, and Christ you know, died for you. Other times, it might be through showing compassion through practical ways. And so we need to walk with the Lord and be open to his spirit and grow in discernment on how he would, he would love. The pastors deal with this a lot you know, during, during the week as folks come in f- for, for different needs and things like that. And sometimes meeting a person's physical need is not necessarily the most loving thing to do, you know, just giving a person money. And so you know, the Lord wants to give discernment and things like that in order to love others. And the Lord will give us discernment as we abide in him, as we walk in him, as we trust in him. He'll show us and convict us how we're to love others. Verse 10, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Paul wants these believers to be approved in those things which are excellent. The word approve, I'm told, refers to um, those who would test different types of metals. And they would have skill, they would, have, you know, they would study, and they would know these different types of metal. They would know about galvanic corrosion, right, if you're a mechanic kind of thing. They, you know, they would know about these different types of metals and how you know, they worked, and um, you know, they would know how to test these to see what kind of quality they were. And Paul says, in the same way, he wants us to approve those things which are excellent. 
He wants us to know what is right and wrong as we walk in him. And the way that we do that is by abiding in the Lord as he gives us wisdom, right? As he teaches us to, to walk in him, to teach us how to love, to teach us how to minister, right? To teach us, you know, when to do this or, or to do that. The Lord wants to make us, make us wise. The Lord wants us to be without um, offense, to be sincere until the day of Christ. The word sincere means to be without wax. I like that because in the ancient world, if they would have a vase or a vase, you know, or a sculpture, if it had a crack or a blemish, sometimes they would take wax and kind of fill in the cracks so you couldn't really tell. It's like the ancient version of Bondo, you know, and they would put it there. But the only problem was when he put it out in the sun and the heat would get to it, eventually it would begin to show through. In the same way, the Lord says, hey, I want you to be sincere. I want you to be without wax in your walk with me. I don't want your changing and transforming and be merely outward. You can put on a suit and tie, you know, and fool everybody. But in, in reality, the Lord wants it to begin in your heart. He wants your heart and he wants you to, to grow in purity and be changed from the inside out. A sincere heart to be single-minded as the Psalms called it, not to be double-minded as James says. And the Lord wants us to abide in these things and do these things until the day of Christ, until the rapture comes to take us home. Verse 11, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And so Paul closes this section now with talking about being filled with the fruits of righteousness. And another name for the fruits of righteousness are the fruits of the Spirit. This is why we can be filled with these things, because God's Spirit continually wants to fill us and control us and transform us. He wants to work these things through our life. Some of these fruits of righteousness are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These fruits of righteousness, God wants to produce these things. And Jesus says, as you abide in me and I in you, you'll bear fruit and fruit that remains. And this is what he was talking about. These fruits of righteousness, personal holiness, as we walk with him. He wants us to grow, to be filled, to be controlled, to, to produce fruit that all may glorify God to the glory and to the praise of God. So in closing, it's clear that we're in Christ. God has placed us in Christ and the purpose of doing so is so that we can be blessed and so that we can grow to bless others. Amen. Amen. 